Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Britain's Queen Elizabeth has died. Buckingham Palace says the 96-year-old British monarch died peacefully at Balmoral. This is how the news broke on the BBC. The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King, that is Charles, uh, and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. World leaders, including the Taoiseach, have been paying tribute to Britain's late Queen, who reigned for 70 years. We have much to be grateful for in terms of that very significant contribution to peace and to mutual understanding uh, and the British-Irish relationship. Queen Elizabeth has died. The 96-year-old monarch died at Balmoral Castle in Scotland, where members of the royal family had travelled to be with her. Buckingham Palace said that Queen Elizabeth died peacefully. Charles III has become king following the death of his mother. Well, tonight, the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, who was just appointed by Queen Elizabeth two days ago, made this statement. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. Well, let's go live now to Windsor Castle, the official royal residence, and to news correspondent Ollie Barrett. And Ollie, crowds inevitably gathering there tonight and elsewhere. Give us a sense of the reaction there to the news of Queen Elizabeth's passing and indeed the mood of a nation that's lost its head of state. That's right. Ever since the news was announced, we've seen people here in Windsor coming from all around the town, moving up towards the castle behind me, which, as you say, has really become the Queen's home in recent times. It's where she spent the vast majority of her time, and it's where she will be buried in 10 days or so as well, alongside Prince Philip. And a lot of people have been saying they just felt that they wanted to come out and pay their respects in some way. Some have been bringing flowers. Others have been standing at the castle in quiet contemplation with family members or loved ones or friends. There's been a somber mood at times, but also a quite light-hearted mood at times as well. There are tourists mixed in with the crowds outside Windsor Castle here. We're seeing the same at Buckingham Palace as well. The mood of the nation, I think, is a difficult one to gauge at this point. For so many Brits, for the vast majority of Brits, Queen Elizabeth is the only monarch, the only head of state they've ever known. And so it's going to be a potentially difficult emotional 
10 days or so for many British people who are coming to terms now with exactly how they feel about what has taken place. We heard those tributes from Liz Truss. She has been meeting with cabinet ministers this evening and with uh, officials from royal households and from uh, organizations like the police to work out some of the details about what will come next over the next couple of weeks or so. Boris Johnson, who was the Queen's Prime Minister until just two days ago, his tribute as well, she, he said she seemed so timeless and so wonderful that we'd come to believe like children that she would just go on and on. And I think that is the case for many British people tonight, that sense that uh, the Queen, who's just always been there, no longer is. As you say, uh, a period of mourning now in place ahead of her funeral, and already uh, the titles are changing. Charles now named King Charles uh, III, although that's, that's waiting to do that formally, of course, and the reconfiguring of royal titles. That's exactly right. He is the king, but there are various procedures to go through now to really sign, seal and deliver that. But he, over the next 10 days or so, will travel uh, around the UK. It's something of a national tour for him. We expect that we'll hear a national address from him at some point, probably tomorrow. We also now know that the UK Parliament will convene on Friday. Normal business is going out the window, essentially, and they'll be gathering to pay tribute to the Queen on Friday and on Saturday, which doesn't happen very often either. And then, as I say, all the details being worked out about how exactly the next 10 days or so pan out, all of this is very well planned. But the fact that the Queen died in Scotland, for example, means that she will lie in state at St Giles's Cathedral in Scotland for a period before making her way back, her body making its way back to London, where she'll also lie in state here. The funeral, we think, will be on the 18th or the 19th of September. As I say, these final details still being worked out as we speak. Right, Ollie Barrett joining us from Windsor Castle tonight. Thank you for that. Well, tonight the Taoiseach paid this tribute to Queen Elizabeth. On behalf of the Irish government, I've expressed my condolences to the British people, to the British government and of course to uh, King Charles and the royal uh, family. Uh, and to say that we in Ireland um, are, are saddened also because there, there is no doubt that uh, Queen Elizabeth in particular, uh, particularly during her state visit in 2011, uh, transformed the British-Irish relationship and played a critical role in terms of developing reconciliation, uh, mutual understanding, uh, and epitomised and personified by that visit in 2011, which we will never forget, uh, the very warm response of the Irish people. Uh, right throughout the country um, and also a genuine admiration for her fortitude uh, and a respect for the manner in which she was determined uh, to make a difference in respect of the historic relationship between Britain and Ireland and we have much to be grateful for in terms of that very significant contribution to peace and to mutual understanding uh, and the British-Irish relationship. Well, to talk more on this, I'm joined by former Taoiseach John Bruton, Sinn Féin TD, Ono Bryn, businesswoman and broadcaster Nora Casey, and journalists Alexandra Ryan and Michael O'Regan. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, John Bruton, clearly the end of an era, um, Britain's longest-serving monarch, 70 years in that uh, role, and a figure whose influence, no doubt, was global um, for maybe mixed reasons, but your reaction uh, to the announcement today of her passing? Well, I, I think the first reaction would be to express sympathy with her family. 
and this is a great loss for them. Uh, the British people have lost their monarch, but they've lost their mother and their grandmother. I think that's <clears throat> the first thing to recall. Looking back on her life, I think her life was marked by a profound sense of duty, uh, something that probably grew up of her upbringing. She was in London during the Blitz, when Britain stood alone against, uh, against the fascists, and she experienced many of the mm. hardships that people, ordinary Britons, experienced at that time. And out of that came this very strong sense of duty, that she would do her duty. Perhaps not as fashionable a sense of what should guide one uh, nowadays as it was at that time. But I think that's one of the reasons why she was held in such affection was because people perceived that she was not putting herself first, that she was putting her duty to her country before herself. Um, yeah, it, and that sense of duty, she was, you know, tied into that from a very young age. Um, Ona Bryn, in terms of her legacy and how you think Irish people may, may view her passing and the reaction, because it's not as straightforward uh, for British people. They've lost um, their head of state, but for Irish people, it is a different story and the sentiment may be somewhat different. Yeah, although, like John, I suppose, and the Taoiseach, the first and most appropriate thing is to express condolences to, to the family and, and to people in Britain, but also to unionists here in Ireland, because uh, they're going to feel her passing in a way much more acutely than, than some of us may do personally. And I think it's really important we acknowledge that, mm. we recognise that, and we respect that. Um, I think for a lot of us, you know, I'm a Republican, I've never been particularly enamoured by monarchy, but you can't but not have been impressed by, for example, her laying a wreath at the Garden of Remembrance, mm. her, her efforts to use a, a small bit of Irish at, at the dinner in Dublin Castle. A very brave decision to meet and shake hands with Martin McGuinness mm. at a crucial point in the peace process. And while for some people they might seem small symbolic gestures, they're the gestures that peace is built on and all of the private work that happens behind the scenes becomes consolidated publicly. And I think the overwhelming majority of people in Ireland, irrespective of your political affiliation or background, those are the key things that I think people here will acknowledge and remember. And, you know, Michelle O'Neill, as First Minister designate in the North today in her public statement, acknowledge not just those as symbolic moments, but in her own engagements uh, with Queen Elizabeth, the fact that it was a genuine, sincere desire to play a leadership role in consolidating the peace process. That's important and that has to be acknowledged, irrespective of people's yeah. views of, of history or other matters. Uh, that sense, Nora, that she went where, I suppose, politicians couldn't go in, in building bridges, as Mary McAleese talked about, on that key visit to Ireland in, in 2011. Do you think that was a real pivotal point for Anglo-Irish relations and what she did there and what, what, what happened during that time was really seismic? It's almost intangible. I, I left here at 17, so I spent more years of my life in Britain than I did here. And although I grew up in a family that was committed to the United Ireland, my grandfather fought in 1916, in, in Britain and in London, um, people always separate the Queen from the rest of the monarchy. Even people are sceptical. They understand that this is a woman, literally till almost she died, she worked for public service. She was stoic. She never complained. She did her duty. And that was very important to her. At 25, she became Queen. My son is 23. And I can't imagine him even running a household, let alone a country. <laughs> so, but I do think... She, 
Myself, I had a complicated relationship with the monarchy, I suppose because of my upbringing, and I lived there for a very long time. My husband worked for the BBC, so he was always enveloped in the royal family. He covered Princess Diana's funeral, and suddenly the British ambassador to Ireland asked me to be involved in her visit here. So, um, so I got very involved with Harry Crosby mm -hmm. in the convention centre. I ran all the fashion shows. He ran the Olivia O'Leary hosted uh, show in the convention centre and loved putting it on, but totally underestimated the impact it would have on me. I, I remember distinctly Richard's birthday was uh, May the 17th and we were both watching the cameras when she got off the plane and I was beyond emotional. Now, I lived in London for a long time, so it was extraordinary for me to feel that sense of symbolism that she was, you know, I remember going to the opening of the Garden of Remembrance in honour of my grandfather. And there mm. she was bowing and yeah. placing a wreath. So, so to me, and, and, you know, there was no end of ribbing mm -hmm. that my husband, who's British, was being introduced to the Queen by his Irish wife. Um, but it was, it was a really important, I think it was a really important visit. And I was also at President Higgins' visit back to London in 2014, which was incredibly important. Yes. Um, and on that and talking about it, the symbolic figure um, that she's being lauded um, as this evening and that people, I think, from across all political divides are saying that, Ali, do you think that in the same way that she had that influence through the generations or how did younger people view um, Queen Elizabeth, do you think? Obviously, uh, the, the offspring were brought into lots of scandal and, and other yeah, matters, yeah. especially in re recent years and the subject yeah. of a lot of uh, showbiz stories. But uh, Queen Elizabeth herself, how do you think she, she's viewed by a younger generation? Yeah, it's, it's so unfortunate that the last three years have been just like totally filled with scandal because 2019 we had the infamous Prince Andrew interview on Newsnight, mm. Epstein scandal, and then Harry and Meghan stepping down, and then obviously Prince Philip dying. I mean, her husband of 73 years. That was, it's been a very, very tough three years, mm. but I agree with everybody here in the panel. It's really interesting how generational her reign has become, because she's been the longest reigning monarch in history, 70 years, but there's so many people in their teens, in their 20s, that have come to love and admire her. And I do think a big part of that is due to Netflix, The Crown, which I know sounds very strange, but people really understood through watching that the amount she sacrificed, mm -hmm. the amount of effort she put in, and what everyone else has said on this panel, that duty was her most important thing. And that's why it does sadden me what she's been through in the last three years. And I think a lot of people feel like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle get a lot mm -hmm. of bad time, but now people understand why, you know? It's a lot of people love her and have always supported her, and they did till her dying day. Yeah, do you think there's that sense here, um, Michael? Like, obviously, as, as I said, the, the reaction in Britain is a nation in shock, um, a nation in mourning now, but in terms of how she will be viewed here and how she will be remembered here, how do you think that will be? I think she'll be remembered very well. I think she was admired Separate, separately from the family, you know. Uh, separately uh, from the institution? And, and even from the institution. Uh, I think absolutely people who would have cast a cold eye on the idea of a monarchy felt that she had done her job superbly. And then, of course, when she came here, uh, uh, you know, the Garden of Remembrance, who would have thought? She laying a reed in the Garden of Remembrance, officially opened in 1966 to commemorate uh, all those, uh, you know, who had... Uh, played a role in, in securing our freedom and all that. And there, in the presence of the Taoiseach and the, and the uh, uh, president at the time, and then she bows her head. This was quite a dramatic mm -hmm. moment, even perhaps more dramatic than the few words of Irish uh, at the dinner in Oris and Oak Throne. And then her remarkably long reign. 
70 years, 15 prime ministers, beginning with Winston Churchill, born in the 1800s, died in the 1960s. And historians have always guessed, or more or less, I, I think from analysing her reign, that Churchill was her favourite mm. prime minister. And I think that was because of the Second World War, yeah. his friendship with her father, etc. Like, it's extraordinary, really, isn't it, to think of, you know, Churchill, who was born at the end of, you know, the, the, the 1800s, and then right up to welcoming Liz Truss, Liz Truss and asking day. her to form a government <laughs> this week. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, just to go back to that Irish visit, um, and own like, at the time, Sinn Féin said, and this was in 2011, and Gerry Adams <coughs> said, this is premature, this is too soon, it's not the right time. Do you think on reflection that it was the right time and it was critically important to happen then? Yeah, without a doubt. And, and look, I, I suppose that all of these key turning points in the peace process, um, you, you, you make the best assessment that you can at the time, but you also reflect afterwards. Uh, and I think probably one of the reasons why it, it proved so successful is how she ha handled and managed it. And again, Michael is absolutely right. That image of head of the British Empire, the Commonwealth, uh, the British state, with all of the history and symbolism of that, not just laying that wreath, but bowing in tribute to the men and women of 1916 mm -hmm. who fought and initiated a war of independence against the British Empire for the creation of an Irish Republic. That, that's a very significant thing. And I think, you know, in very similar ways, for example, to, to, to Mary Robinson and some of the initiatives she took when she was head of state here, uh, mm -hmm. I think all of those things are things that we learn from. Uh, mm -hmm. And there is no doubt that there was progress made in the consolidation of the peace process here during that time. And I think uh, uh, Jerry would be the first person to acknowledge that uh, uh, on reflection. Yeah, and then critically, there was that Martin McGuinness um, handshake in 2012, um, John. And again, th that was in Belfast at Lyric Theatre. And again, that was, that was actually critically important. I think it was joked off as that, well, it would be awkward not to shake hands or not to do anything in those circumstances. But that was, a, again, a huge moment and a very practical way in one way that they were yes. both there it can't have been and, and, and orchestrated it as well because the decision was made. Really, because there was the background of the murder of Lord Mountbatten, which would have been in her mind, which is an IRA operation. Um, uh, but she did her duty. This, this is the, the, the overwhelming characteristic of her reign was a sense of duty, that she did what was responsible. I also think she took her... She was a woman of faith. She took her responsibilities as head of the Church of England very seriously. And, you know, that, I think, inspired a lot of her sense of service as well. But I agree with all, all, all that's been said about... I, th I think it's also important to say that the new king, uh, Charles III, he has an even longer track record in terms of visiting Ireland than she has. I mean, the sense that he, I think, has set himself the task of visiting every one of the 32 counties. And he's a good way towards that goal yeah. already. Do you think he has, um, arguably, a better relationship, a, cl a closer relationship? He's been over here plenty of times. 1995, there was that uh, key visit. You said it was that the happiest day of your life? I didn't say that, actually. Well, <laughs> I, I didn't say well, that. Well, so well, I can't well. remember what I said, but I didn't say One that. One the happiest days. But the happiest day of life, my life was the day I got married okay. 41 years ago. <laughs> 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 I'd like to clarify that there tonight. My wife is watching, too. So. <laughs> uh, and, and the second one was when meet won the All-Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this is, that, that's a happy day that's going to be repeated several times. <laughs> 
<laughs> but John, on that, um, but on that, and um, Charles's visit, because that was actually seen as quite a big deal back in 1995, because yeah. it was many years later before Queen Elizabeth um, came over here. And what sort of efforts were there diplomatically behind the scenes to make that visit happen? Well, we gave a lot of thought to it, uh, to things that he would like to do. We took him to Newgrange, and I was surprised in a way that he wasn't particularly interested in Newgrange. But then we took him to a garden, to uh, Butterstream Gardens, which Jim Reynolds operated in mm. Trim, and um, Jim, Jim something I knew very well. He was, Prince was absolutely fascinated with mm -hmm. the garden and uh, discussing in detail the plants and so on. And he invited Jim Reynolds to Highgrove subsequently to compare notes to show him his garden. And on that meeting, was there discussion around, was it seen as just a step too far at the time to have Queen Elizabeth's visit here? Because as I said, that was 1995, it was 2011. Before I don't, we I don't saw remember that, that coming up. It may have come up. Yeah. I don't remember it. But I mean, the, we, were, we felt we were doing quite a lot in, in his coming. And he, he, he's genuinely very interested in this country. And I think the royal family generally are interested in this country. And they want, I think they can be a force mm. for healing divisions that Right, that's interesting that you say those. And, and Nora, what you pulled on before, saying your own background, your own view, and I think a lot of Irish people will relate to that, saying, you know, the monarchy certainly doesn't do it for me. Um, to many, she's seen as, you know, the head, figurehead of the, the British state and who oppressed a nation. And um, that the, the, the view there is, is, is grey. But do you think her image softened in the Irish, eyes of Irish people in her later years? Definitely. And it's such a complicated... I spent so long in London, and the Irish in London are even more Irish than the Irish in Ireland, I can tell you. And I edited the Irish Post. We campaigned for the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. And yet, there we were in the heartlands of London, and we, there was always a separation, exactly what Michael says, a separation. The Queen, she was good, solid, hard-working, public service. And as I say, she always was stoic. She didn't complain. She never went and, you know, talked about the things that happened in her life. She just went out and did her public service and the rest of the monarchy, which, quite frankly, to be perfectly honest, the Irish in London had no time for whatsoever. And when she came to Ireland, I, I mean, I can't tell you how different the reaction was because of the symbolism of what she did. And it's easy for us to say she put on a green dress or wore an Irish designer outfit or so, but all of that was carefully orchestrated. And it made such an enormous difference, I think, to people who lived in London, including myself at the time, mm. in terms of the relationship we had with the country that we had a shared history with and not always a good shared history with. It was phenomenal. And I, I think at a time in Britain when it's so divisive, and so I looked at her on Tuesday, you know, mm -hmm. when she was welcoming Liz Truss, who's a very divisive character. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting on the, you know, precipice of the time where the economy is in ruins and we should all be working together. There should be some harmony between our two countries. And that's not what's been happening at the helm in Britain. And the Queen has probably had a much more unifying presence for yeah. us over the years. Interesting then to see what will, will happen now and will there be a change in the, in, the, in, in, in the public's view or in the interest of the royal family with Queen Elizabeth, who you yeah. say was well regarded as a person seen for doing her duty over 70 years. Will Prince Charles, who's now King Charles, coming into that role, mm. have that same appeal? I really don't think so, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, definitely in my generation, I don't think a lot of people like Prince Charles. And that's obviously, they don't know him, they don't know him <coughs> personally. But there has been something about the Queen and even 
in Meghan and Harry's tirade against the institution. At no point have they said one single bad word about the Queen. In fact, they've done the opposite. They've named their daughter Lilibet after her, which is the name she called herself when she mm. couldn't say Elizabeth when she was younger. There seems to be more anger and angst against other people in the royal family, and they're the people that are now left. So I really don't know what the public image is going to be of the royal family now. I think they have a lot of work to do, especially given what's gone on with Harry and Meghan and also Prince Andrew. I think a lot of people put a, brush a lot of things under the carpet because they loved Queen Elizabeth so much and now she's gone. So I really don't know what's going to happen. But I do think there is still a love there and I think yeah. there's so much praise okay. for the family in general. So hopefully it keeps going. Okay, well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Next, more on the death of Britain's Queen Elizabeth. Please stay with us. Welcome back. I'm joined now by London-based correspondent Vincent McAvinney. Vincent, you're very welcome along to The Tonight Show. Um, to come to you um, this evening, there was a briefing at Downing Street. Give us an update on the political reaction. Um, obviously, firstly, news or at least rumours around uh, the Queen's demise uh, broke in the House of Commons when that note was passed around. Yeah, we were in a very surreal situation where we saw in real time the Prime Minister being informed by a note passed to her from a colleague uh, that the Queen was under unwell and under medical observation at Balmoral. That note was then passed to the opposition party leaders as well to make them aware. And then Liz Truss went back to Downing Street. Now, in the briefing that we've been given this evening, of course, the official announcement of the Queen's passing went out at 6.30 p.m., but we now understand that she passed away much earlier in the afternoon because the Prime Minister was told at 4.30 that the Queen had passed away. I think that was just before potentially Prince William, Prince Andrew, Prince Edward and Sophie, Countess of Wessex, had arrived. So I think only Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles were there. The Queen, uh, obviously, with the announcement went out at 6.30. The Prime Minister uh, gave a statement at just after 7 o'clock. Uh, and then we understand after she gave that statement where she actually confirmed for the first time that Charles would not be changing his name as monarch, that he will be King Charles III, 
They had a telephone conversation after the statement in which he paid tribute to the Queen. And this evening at around 9 p.m., they started a meeting between the Prime Minister, the heads of the military, the heads of the police, government department and the palace to just set in motion the timetable for what will be officially now 10 days of mourning, culminating in a funeral, we believe, a state funeral on the 19th of uh, September. And we'll be getting more details overnight about how that official period of mourning will work. One other detail is that tomorrow there will be a session in the House of Commons, a rare Friday sitting, in which MPs will be able to pay tribute to Her Majesty the Queen. They will then all, we understand, have to uh, pledge their allegiance to uh, King Charles III on a session on Saturday. Uh, and then during this period, because that session the today was on emergency legislation uh, in order to stop these huge utility bills coming into place, they will need to sit, we believe, next week in order to get that legislation through. And that, we now believe, will be the first piece of legislation that receives royal assent by King Charles III. Yeah, interesting there. You're mentioning something that is really to the forefront of probably many people's minds in Britain, and that's like the cost of living, those crippling energy bills, all the other challenges um, of life. What about the future of the royals in the middle of all that? Do you think to the British public they really matter that much now that the iconic figurehead, as Queen Elizabeth um, was, is now gone? Where does King Charles fit into that equation? Well, what is interesting is uh, before this period, it had been predicted that uh, the recession uh, it could have triggered a negative uh, quarter in terms of growth because of the disruption over 10 days at least to public life, potentially bank holidays, businesses not being able to operate as normal. We obviously know that we're going into recession anyway. That's been sort of guaranteed now by the Bank of England, as much as Liz Trust likes to say that's not going to happen. So we won't see so much maybe the financial impact uh, that we were going to see if it had been normal time. But turning to uh, this now, I mean, lots of people over the years, of course, when I talk to, you know, uh, even family in Ireland or, or wherever, they would say, oh, don't you think they'll just skip Charles and go on to Prince William? That's, that was never going to happen. And the, the moment that the Queen passed, he became King Charles III. Uh, there will be a coronation a few mm. months down the line, but he is already the monarch. There was no moment of national debate about whether we should skip a generation. That was never going to happen. That is firmly established. In terms of what happens now, I think the Republican campaign, as much as it is in the United Kingdom, has always known that Queen Elizabeth II was effectively uh, untouchable. Her personal polling ratings, whatever you thought of the monarchy, she was seen as someone who did her job, mm -hmm. who gave her life to the service of the country. But all of those questions now will start to reopen about where Britain goes next. But I think there'll be a move behind the scenes. We know that Charles will come yeah. to London tomorrow, but he'll then go on a tour of all four nations to try to really secure this transition, which has already been in process yeah. for a number of months now. And, and uh, secure, secure his own spot and establish himself, I suppose, as, as best he, he can. Um, Vincent, thank you for joining us with that insight tonight. My panel is still here with me. Former Taoiseach John Bruton, Sinn Féin TD, Ono Brin, businesswoman and broadcaster Nora Casey, and journalist Sally Ryan and Michael O'Regan. And Michael, listening to what Vincent had to say there, you know, about King Charles and the idea that maybe for a lot of maybe younger uh, British public, they might have liked to see uh, William and Kate now, you know, take up that that role as the first royal couple. It's not to be. It is King Charles. Um, does it call into question the popularity of the monarchy of the future? It does. He's not a terribly popular figure. 
And despite what Vincent said there, that he was always going to uh, take over when the Queen died, uh, there was speculation at one time that uh, he wouldn't because of his unpopularity mm. and uh, that it would skip a generation. But he's now got to assert himself and to portray himself in a manner which is going to be hugely challenging because inevitably there will be contrast with the Queen. Interesting, by the way, if you recall Diana Spencer, his late wife, uh, said in that now infamous BBC interview that he would never be king. Well, that's one prediction that hasn't yeah. come, come right. And interesting as well about a lack of uh, debate around any of that own, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an instant accession, I suppose, as is the protocol, Th this is what happens. But there has been controversy over, in Commonwealth countries, we saw that during the Jubilee tour of... Um, of, of uh, Prince William and Kate to to Jamaica and, and to the Caribbean, that there were protests, that there's apathy, certainly, and there's protest in Commonwealth countries about the Queen still being head of state there. Uh, and where where it, uh, where the future holds, really, for that. And, I mean, like Nora, I lived in London for, for many years and, and the vast majority of my, my English friends, English and, and Welsh and Scottish friends, are broadly Republican in, in the sense of, of not supporting the idea of the monarch. But it's very, very difficult for anybody who comes from a country that was formerly part of the British Empire to separate the institution of the monarchy, uh, uh, not in any way uh, wanting to overlap with the, 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 the loss of Queen Elizabeth's life today, but the institution of the monarchy uh, and its role and its symbolism in terms of empire. Like, that's, that's just a, a reality. And therefore, of course, there's always going to be issues around these things, as there are here. Uh, um, I suppose what I would say is uh, those are debates that people will start having tomorrow, the day after and the day after that. Because, again, irrespective of one's politics, and it's a, a point John made, and I think he's right, we also have a person who has family, who has friends, mm. who have... There is a bereavement. There's a real human being and a set of human beings around them. But, of course, those political debates will be ignited. I think that's a good thing, by the mm -hmm. way, because the very fact, for example, that there is a set of very obscure, quite arcane rules about succession kind of highlights the fact that, you know, in the 21st century, is this really yeah. how states should appoint their head of state? Ultimately, that's a matter for the people of Britain, not for us. It but those, those debates will continue, and not just yeah. in Britain, but across the former... Uh, countries Inter in the Empire. Interesting, too, that the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, had, um, you know, we saw that clip of her in her youth um, speaking out against the monarchy, saying, you know, these are unelected heads of state. Um, and, well, she flipped on that view. But <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting insight into maybe, you know, the view that maybe is out there around the royal family when it's not Queen Elizabeth. Okay. overseeing them. You said it yourself, Claire. The, the, the best thing about the royal family was Queen Elizabeth because she unified almost everybody. All generations loved her. I mean, you've heard Ali talk about her. You know, you can hear Richard's mother adored her. She somehow transcended the royal family and the inequality issues of, you know, Charles, whether we like it or not, and a lot of British people have never forgiven him for Diana. You know, whether they like it or not, he's now their new head of state, unelected. At least in this country, we get to elect our president. And yet he's going to be their emblem of the country. And he won't unify the country. He definitely won't unify the country. And then at the same time, you have these really divisive issues with politics in Britain at the moment, at a time when we desperately... I mean, if ever we needed that unifying force of Queen Elizabeth, it's now. And sadly, it's not there now. Yeah, it, it does call into question uh, the relevance of, of the royals. Do you, think that, do you think they're relevant, John? Well, I, I, it, speaking in, in crass economic terms, the royal the monarchy is a 
money spinner for Britain. It brings in huge numbers of tourists, people coming to see the Trooping of the Colour, to see other things associated with the monarchy. The ho that whole invented tradition, and it is largely an invented tra tradition. Eric Hobsbawm wrote this book about it, you know, about how, how th these traditions were dreamed Pomp up. Pomp ceremony. Dreamed up in the 19th century. But people people are taken in by them and are attracted by them. And are they important? The monarchy, the monarchy, do, you think, do you think, and the though, monarchy, they're so. important if we're talking about other matters think, that are going on, a cost yes, of living I, crisis? I, Huge I events do, taking yeah. place around the world. I think symbols their are very important. And, and their relevance. I think symbols carry an emotional charge. And I think the, the monarchy as a symbolic form uh, is a unifying factor between certainly Scotland and England and Wales. I, you know, it's different in Ireland. Although a divisive symbol here. Yes, because we have a particular yeah. history here. Uh, but as one very properly acknowledged, the unionist community in Northern Ireland, who are part of our people, That's right. uh, they will feel this particularly deeply. And I would imagine that King Charles uh, and his, the Prince of Wales, when he succeeds, if they're following a family tradition, will want to act as a healing agent mm. between the different traditions of the island of Ireland, because they have a, a sense of affinity to both traditions. Mm. And I, I, I can see you know, many constructive possibilities if, we look, if we're moving towards a new Ireland where the royal family could play a constructive role in making unionists more comfortable with new arrangements, shall we say, uh, which, which, which I think they need to be made comfortable with. Right. OK, so you're saying stepping in in, in a political I'm, I'm way not, no, around no, issues no, like I'm, the protocol and, and that kind of thing? No, I mean, I don't, the, the, the secret of the Queen's success is that she wasn't political. She wasn't issuing statements about foreign policy or things like that. She, she, she expressed herself simply by being, by mm. being there, by her behaviour, not by her statements. But I think at an appropriate moment, they may be able to play a crucial role in healing the divisions on this island. Okay. Um, we can't go without talking, I suppose, <coughs> about the, the scandal that's also rocked the royal family and where um, you think that now that this has happened and that King Charles is in place, that Prince Andrew will fade away entirely from the scene as they try to present a new, cleaner image of the family, Ali? Oh, all I've heard today is Prince Andrew is out. Like, literally, that's all I've been hearing from over there. I think everyone has to remember that, you know, he was the Queen's favourite son. Everybody knows that. And when the Epstein uh, scandal happened in 2019, she did stand by him quite publicly. Obviously, you know, some of his military roles were taken. The HRH status was gone. But he has been seen at a number of events and he has been seen visiting the Queen, around the Queen. I do think she really did let him stay around so that people maybe could change their opinion, maybe forget about what he was involved in or allegedly involved in. Um, but now I don't think they're going to have any of it. I really think we may never see Prince Andrew again in terms of royal engagements, in terms of being at Christmas dinners, all that stuff. I really think he's going to be gone. I think... King Charles has a huge amount of work ahead of him in terms of popularity, and I think that's one of the early things he's probably going to do is clean up the image, and that's the first person to go. All right, there we'll leave it. My thanks to John, Nora, Alexandra and Michael. Own is staying here with me because next, today's ECB interest rate hike, which means more pain for mortgage holders. So stay with us.
Welcome back. I'm joined by Virgin Media News economics correspondent Paul Colgan. Sinn Féin TD Ono Brin is still here with me and I'm also joined by Fianna Fáil TD Christopher O'Sullivan. Um, I want to talk, of course, the uh, big story today, other big story today was about the ECB and the rate rise that we're seeing. Paul, take us through this. This 0.75% rise, it's a record rise and desperate yeah. times, desperate measures, I presume. Yeah, they'd never done anything like this before, <coughs> apart from a brief period uh, for a technical reason when they were setting up the euro. So two weeks ago, this would have been a huge shock. But I think when the central bankers went to Wyoming and the US and, and they sat around the table discussing the issues that are facing all of them around the world, it became apparent that there was a growing argument within the ECB for a big, big hike uh, to send a big statement. And you heard Isabel Schnabel, who would have been regarded as sort of a center ground figure, saying she believed it should do this, even if it risks tipping Europe into a recession. There's a fear within the ECB that the genie got out of the bottle on inflation earlier this year and they need to, to reclaim some ground. And it's easier for them to hike rates now when Europe is not technically in recession because once we get into that sort of territory, it becomes very difficult for the ECB to continue to take action in the face of growing political unhappiness. And Christine Lagarde today said there'll be more of these to come. She said there will probably be more than two, but probably less than five. So it's going to be three or four more of these whether they're as big as today's, it's not clear yet. That yeah. will depend on... on Paul, the, tell us about the, the impact. Like, for people at home, mortgage holders, this is going to have a big impact yeah. in terms of what we're going to have to pay back every month. Particularly those 300,000 or so people who, are, who have been on tracker mortgages and have been told time and time again by financial advisors, don't let go of your tracker mortgage. Hold on to it. Come hell or high water, it's now reaching the stage potentially that those people, many of those, will have to consider whether it is still worth holding on to their tracker mortgage or whether they should fix to a better rate. Because it looks like we're heading for two to three percent potentially on uh, European interest mm. rates. And for some people, particularly on the more expensive trackers, it wouldn't make sense to stay where they're at. And this seems to be the long haul. The ECB wants to get inflation back to two percent. It's currently running way, way, way above that. So we could be here for a while and the tracker mortgage could have, have seen its day. I mean, we're in a cost of living crisis and now we're getting this record um, rate hike, Christopher, in terms of what the government can do to allay this for homeowners and householders who are already struggling with the cost of living. Yeah, what are you going to do about it? Claire, I think it once again underlines uh, the importance of uh, this cost of living budget, Budget 2023. We talked about last year's budget being the most important budget in the history of the state. Uh, I think uh, this budget will dwarf that in terms of the importance and in terms of trying to mitigate against these increased utility bills, increased energy costs, um, increased cost of living in general. And then for those people who are particularly those people who are on those tracker mortgages, those three to 400,000 who are potentially facing anything between 150 and 200 euro extra in their outgoings per month, it means that we are going to have to introduce significant measures, targeted measures, uh, obviously for the most vulnerable and those on the lowest income, but also um, broader measures uh, to try and deal with those middle income earners. Mm -hmm. Many of these middle income earners would be um, mortgage it, holders that they would, would, would be taking it mortgages. Can't, it can't bridge the gap though, can it? With these rate rises we're seeing with the, the, the monthly loans, the payback, the mortgages, what people are now facing and that's not even getting down the line of energy bills and rise generally in the cost of living. I think, listen, this day was, um, it was expected. We were expecting that this would happen, but it certainly doesn't make it any easier for those uh, mortgage holders or those people on tracker mortgages or even those who are going to be looking for finance for homes into the future. Um, 
what we will try to do is cushion the, the blow. Um, there will be a whole host of measures in, yeah. in Budget 2023. I have confidence in uh, Minister McGrath, Minister Donoghue, uh, that they right. will okay. deliver. Uh, but it will, they will have to be significant, and there's no doubting that. And I think all parties appreciate yeah. that. Well, that's what we are hearing out of Britain is this €3 billion Euro, um, <coughs> war chest, if you like, to tackle the cost of living increases. That will help all, everyone, including those people who are now facing um, this interest rate hike on their, on their mortgage repayments. Although you could have a situation where somebody on a track of mortgage, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, who's hit hardest by this, will have whatever gains they get from the government's budget completely wiped out. So, so let's be very clear here. Uh, uh, the Irish banks, particularly the pillar banks, do not have to pass this particular interest rate on. We know from uh, uh, one of the most recent reports by the central bank that their assessment is Irish banks are better placed to absorb some of these interest rate rises than their European counterparts. Why? Because they have a larger portion of the business activity, which is for mortgages, but also they're going to benefit from the increased interest rates in terms of their other lending activities. And really what Can the they Minister do that? For... They haven't done it to <clears throat> date absolutely. On, on the, ab the variable ab rate mortgages. Ab absolutely. So particularly the pillar banks have returned to profitability. They have a certain degree of room. Nobody expects the banks to absorb all of the interest rate rises that Paul has talked about. But this one in particular in the mouth uh, of uh, uh, Winter's key. OK, so the government what, to push what, on the banks to, to, to stall the ball. What, what uh, Pascal Donoghue should have done is what he did at the start of COVID, which is call those banks in. If you remember at the start of COVID, when we knew people were going to have difficulty paying their mortgages, yes. he got agreement from the banks in terms of certain types of measures. That is the kind of action we need now because there's no point government promising people okay. some relief I, in terms of energy bills if all well, of that is wiped I just want to get very, very quickly, incre increased I just, mortgage yeah. payments. I want to get reaction to that. Is that something that has been considered at all? Could well, be I, on the agenda I to call the banks in and all, say... All things are on the agenda, but I think spare, we have, to be, we have to be frank with people and we have to be honest with people and we have to be fair and say that in, in all honesty banks will um, pass this uh, hike in interest rate on to customers. There is one lending institution, though, uh, that we aren't talking about enough, and that are, is credit unions. Credit unions are not tied to the ECB rate. They're, um, they depend on their members, their members' savings, so they could play a big part in terms of introducing competition into the into the mortgage sector in in mortgages in right. lendings they're not tied so to the ecb so they do not have to pass on the ecb rates okay it, it introduces competition I mean, and they also can uh, they don't have to pass on those rates i think that's a very important point okay so the credit union potentially the good guy here paul i mean realistically so, are people going to be switching over from all the big banks who are likely to pass but on we're this, losing this ulster rate. bank we're losing kbc in many ways we're facing a second banking crisis 10 years after the first one in the sense that competition has been reduced so significantly. And yes, the credit union movement probably deserves a, a bigger place with, with, well. within the system, but they're not going to provide the same level of competition that big players like Ulster Bank were, were providing in the market. And there's no sign of, of a significant player entering the market for various reasons. We do have smaller, uh, less traditional lenders who are out there, but it seems they will put up their rates too. And in other countries, is there is there potential government intervention or anything that can be done around that? Or is it a kind of hands up going, this is tough, guys, but we're just going well, to have to, well, to see how it goes? Next, next to Greece, we have the second highest mortgage rates in Europe and we have had for a really long period we're of time. Also, like we're, they, we're they, the they, they offer has, different types of mortgages in France. Isn't, that, isn't that, that problematic? We're already it, paying incredibly high it mortgage is, and, rates. And, and, that is down to, and now to, we're lumped with this Absolutely, rate there's no denying that and, and I absolutely cannot deny that. But what, what we also have to take into account is Ireland is the only country in the Eurozone where we're seeing a month-on-month -month decrease uh, in interest rates. So measures like that, yes, we are losing KCB, we're losing Ulster Bank, but there are other lenders 
um, entering the market as well, giving people that option. And the other message, I guess, to people out there who are concerned... Is this the shop around message? No, no, not shop around, but certainly talk to your bank if you're, if you're concerned about repayments, if you're anxious because of today's uh, message, certainly talk to your bank uh, and discuss that option of going to a fixed mortgage. I think that's prudent for anybody to do. Let's, let's be very clear. The, the, the three principal banks we're talking about have returned to profitability. Now, obviously, that's precarious and you want to protect it. <clears throat> that profitability was in part funded by massive bailouts uh, of Irish taxpayers' money. It is simply not the case that the banks have to pass on every single interest rate hike. And therefore, it is not unreasonable to say to government, the Minister for Finance should engage in dialogue with the banks to see what is their capacity without in any way jeopardising their commercial standing to absorb some of these increases. Because if they don't, the impact on working families, particularly as we approach the winter, is appalling. And the idea that the minister wouldn't even try that. I think wouldn't he would, even, uh, No, no, but he hasn't. On, I think right? you, I think the would. idea that the minister... And we saw when AIB threatened to close, what was it, 200 banks uh, uh, or, or services across the country. Political okay. intervention, and public pressure worked. That's what we need now. Briefly. And the message to the banks, yes. absorb some of these, play your part right, in this okay. time of national uh, crisis. Don't keep all we will, the burden on we will, families. We will, sadly, we're out of time. Um, we will be coming back to this, of course, because it is a big issue um, for many people and it's not going away. But before we go, a reminder of tonight's main story again. And we can bring you some of tomorrow's UK newspaper front pages. Britain's Queen Elizabeth has died. The 96-year-old died peacefully today with her family by her side. Well, that's it. Uh, these are, I think we can bring you now, the live scenes at Buckingham Palace tonight. Uh, the group chat podcast is on next over on Virgin Media 2. But from all the team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.